Hi, this is the podcast recording of Generations Home Church with Noah Johnson. Enjoy. You can understand why Chris is a little bit Um, Since the designated prayer guy isn't here, would somebody else like to open us in prayer? Oh, oh man. Because you're sitting right here. That's great, just not Yacht. Oh, man. Well, he got cut off last week. Starting in Genesis, and then you did this. Oh, oh, wait. Who? Oh, oh, yeah. Good job, guys. Field. <laughs> Wander around. I was lost. <laughs> All right. Uh, Lord, we just come before you and we thank you for this time we have together uh, every weekend. And um, I pray that we could all just hear your word, Father, and that Noah would speak your word and you'd speak through him, Lord. Um, I pray that uh, the toilet would somehow repair itself if that's possible because I know Chris can't fix it. Um, Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. We are in Exodus uh, chapter four, the end of it. So I want to just, I know we've talked about this a couple times, but by way of reminder, oh, there's Mogan. You guys, Mogan has like the biggest Bible in the church. So (laughs) the most holy. Um, (laughs) I just want to remind us why we are going through the Old Testament, and hopefully that doesn't, you don't need a reason to be reminded of it, or you don't have any question as to why, but in the church, uh, particularly it seems like over the past couple decades, it seems to become uh, less and less likely that when you go to church, you're going to hear teaching from the Old Testament, and yet um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us in chapter 10... Verse 6 says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in Romans, so better flip to the next book. He's, uh, at the beginning of chapter 10, he's kind of, he's giving a, well, I guess I can just read it, but it says, he says in verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolatrous as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. And he goes on to just basically go through some of the things that Israel did uh, in their time in the wilderness. And that those things are really an example for us to see them and not follow suit. And, I guess the point I'm making is the entire Bible is, is for our edification and for us to know how to walk with the Lord, but particularly some of the things that the Lord does with Israel in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those books in particular 
are about not only the birth of the world at large, but the birth of a nation that's very important to the economy and plan of God. And so it's very important for us to understand that the things that are actually happening as we're going through Exodus are not something that is relegated to the past that has nothing to do with us. In fact, it is directly not only influencing who we are as Christians, but it speaks to us directly about how we ought to live and what God is doing and how he has worked in the past. And so I just want to remind you of that as we're going through the Old Testament. Remember that not only is the Bible written by at least 66 authors who are human, but more importantly, it is written by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is written by God himself. And so the entire book, though it took thousands of years to come together, is written in such a way that it actually fits together. It's a story that is well-crafted by the Spirit of God. And so don't forget those things as we go through the Old Testament. It is literally for us right now. And remember that the early Christians, that was the only Bible they had. The New Testament was being written as they themselves were worshiping. And as people like Paul, who were set by Jesus Christ to be apostles, were interacting with churches that were already functioning like we are right now, a group of people gathering together, a family, a group of people that have been called out from the world to worship God and to walk with him. And so those people were already doing that as the New Testament was being written to deal with different issues and things that were coming up. Corinthians itself is basically a letter from Paul who was an apostle who had authority to talk to the church and say, hey, you guys are doing this, this, and this, and it's wrong. And these are sinful and they need to quit. And you're doing this in your church gatherings and you need to turn it this way. You're not doing it the right way. And so many of the books of the New Testament were actually written to the church to help them live a more holy life and to help them do the right things. So when we come to the Old Testament, remember that. This is the word of God and it is for Christians. And it is for us today. So let's flip back to Exodus. We're in chapter 4. Last time we looked through. Um, so I'm going to be ambitious today. And I'm going to try and get us all the way through 5 and into 6. Uh, last time we left off, Moses was meeting the Lord at the burning bush. And... As the Lord is calling him to go and be the agent by which God is going to rescue the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, where they went down as just a small family of 70 people. And now they've grown over the period of several hundred years. They've grown to a, a multitude of people and really to a, a nation living inside of another nation. So they're their own separate group of people living inside another country where they're slaves. And he's, call, he's telling Moses, Moses, the time has come for your people, Israel, to, take, to come out of bondage and come in and take possession of Canaan, the land that I promised them. And so as he's telling these things to Moses, Moses begins to argue with him. And we looked at that last week and we looked at, or it wasn't last week, it was a couple of weeks ago. But what we looked at is all the times that the Lord would say this and Moses would say, well, but I'm not good at this. And the Lord would say, yeah, but I'm going to be with you. He said, well, I'm not good at talking. He's like, yeah, but I made the tongue. Yeah, but I just don't really want to go. And he's like, I don't care. So we looked at that. And so that's where we left off last. So now we are, we had just left off from there. I believe it was uh, chapter four, verse 17. And so let's take up in uh, verse 18. I'm going to read through 
uh, 18 through the end of the chapter. And then we're going to go back and look at a couple things. So it says, then Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro. So this is after he's at uh, Mount Sinai, which is also called Mount uh, Horeb. And he comes back to his home with Jethro's father-in-law. And he said to him, please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still living. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now in Midian, so now he's in, he's in Midian, and the Lord actually again speaks to him and told Moses, return to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. So he's, he's finally obeying. And even here, there's kind of that, that little bit of an idea of Moses is still hesitant to go. So he's already had these, this, this argument with the Lord at the burning bush, but even here he's still kind of, ah. And then the Lord's like, look, even the people that wanted to kill you, Moses, like I'm God, I'm with you, but even the people that wanted you dead, they're dead now. So you don't need to worry about them. So he finally packs up, he gets ready to go. And at this point it says, verse 21, the Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power. But I will harden his heart, speaking of Pharaoh, so that he won't let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says. Israel is my firstborn. I told you, let I'm sorry, it's my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you have refused to let him go. Look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him, speaking of Moses, and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Now the Lord, now the Lord had said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the things or about all the signs he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of, of the Israelites. And Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshiped. Chris or somebody, is there any way we can turn on the lights? Yeah. Or do you care? I'm just having a really hard time seeing. It's so nice. I could open the, could open the bay doors. I are trying to read well. I know. My eyes are shot. No, no, thank you. Let there be light. Thanks, Chris. Okay, so I want to start uh, back at the beginning, and I want to go back to verse 21. We kind of already looked at those other verses previously. Um, the Lord said when, when Moses went back to Pharaoh, he wants him to do all the wonders that he gave in his hand to do. And then he says a couple of things that are a little bit odd. He says, but I will harden his heart 
so that he won't let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. Okay, so we'll stop right there. And I, there's a couple things that I just want to look at. The first being the idea of the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. This is a, a pretty, I won't say it's controversial, but it can be at times that the Lord would basically take someone's will or heart and just harden it. And part of what I want to say to that is the way that it is, is put into English, it really has that connotation of you have a, because the way that we use those phrases, like, oh, he has such a soft heart or an open heart, or we might even say in a pejorative way, oh, there's such a bleeding heart. And all those ideas in English really mean that that person has a soft, good heart. But to be hard-hearted is to be rebellious or evil, at least against the Lord. And what I want to talk about is that I don't believe that's the correct way for us to look at it. And I'm actually going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and tell you verbatim uh, from my own memory, but I'm actually going to read it out of this book. This is a really good book. Um, it, it was one of the first books I read when I um, became a Christian and started looking at ideas of of theology, but of particular interest in um, the Calvinist, Arminianist debate, or the idea, is God's will completely sovereign, or do people have any will of their own? And the idea of Pharaoh and his heart being hardened is one of the key ideas and verses and stories that is used in that argument, particularly because in Romans, Paul picks up that same idea of somebody having a hardened heart. And so I want to read from you, or I want to read to you uh, from this book. And these two guys, uh, if you want to get more information on the book, I can give it to you. But I want to be sure that I'm, I'm quoting them and that you guys know where it's coming from. But it's called God's Strategy in Human History. It's by a guy named uh, Roger T. Forrester and another guy named V. Paul Marston. And so they are language experts in Hebrew and Greek. And so they really go into that. And I think for me, this was one of the best things I ever read to really show me the heart of God, because I think it is very hard for us to say, God loves you. He loves everyone. But then to say, except for the people that he's going to harden their hearts so that they won't do what he wants. That seems like almost a contradiction in terms. If I'm going to say that the Lord loves you and he desires for you to come to him, which I believe that is the overall if you had to crystallize the idea of God's character in dealing with humanity, that's what I'd say it is. That God loves you and wants you to be with himself. And then to say, but some people he doesn't actually love that much because he's actually going to harden their heart. So it's hard like a rock so that they won't follow him. And these guys go into kind of that word, that Hebrew word that's used there that's translated hardened. And so what I want to read to you from this is about what they quote from, <laughs> from Ezekiel. So this word, I won't try and pronounce it in Hebrew. If you have any interest, you can write this down. It is Strong's. So if you're in the Strong's Concordance, it's 2388. Um, I think it's pronounced Chazak, but I'm not sure. Um, but if you want to look into it further, you can. But this word is used of Pharaoh not only when the Lord says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, but as we'll go through Exodus, there will be a bunch of times where it says Pharaoh hardens his own heart. 
And this word, even though it's translated hardened, I want to read to you uh, from their book and they quote Ezekiel. It says the full text of Ezekiel 3, 7 through 9 is this. But the house of Israel will not hearken unto you. So this is the Lord. He's speaking to Ezekiel. He's given Ezekiel a mission to go to Israel, to be a prophet to Israel, similar to Moses, but different. And he says to them, he says to him, Israel's not going to listen to you, Ezekiel. For they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are of a hard forehead. Chazek, that's that word, the same word that's used of Pharaoh. And a stiff heart. Behold, I have made your face hard, Ezekiel, against their faces, and your forehead hard, same word, against their foreheads, as an adamant harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. The Hebrew usage involves no suggestion of God acting on Pharaoh to make him rebellious or unrepentant. The thought is one of God, of God's making Pharaoh firm, stubborn, or strengthened, if you like, in his resolve to do what he had decided, even when the terrifying plagues would have prompted a more prudent policy. What would any normal unrepentant man in Pharaoh's position have done. Surely he would have given way through faint heartedness and fear. He may have still harbored the evil desire, but would have recognized the futility of trying to carry it out. But if Pharaoh had done this, it would not have suited God's purpose for it would have meant the end of his opportunity to show how he, the true God was associated with Israel right from its birth as a nation. Therefore, God gave Pharaoh the tenacity or the firmness of heart to continue in his evil desire. Now, the reason I bring that up is because I do think that oftentimes the, the heart and character of God is maligned by the usage of this word hardened. And the only reason I stopped there is because it came up in the text. And as we continue through, there, there would have been multiple times that I could have brought this up as we go through Exodus. But what you're going to really see is the Lord calls a shot here. He says, you're going to go to him, Moses, but I'm going to make his heart heart or his, his heart hard. <laughs> And then, <laughs> gosh, words are getting tough. And then when I do that, then I'm going to rescue my people. But as the story unfolds, what we're going to see is actually over and over and over, Moses will go to Pharaoh, let my people go. And it will say, he'll do one miracle after another. And it will say that Pharaoh hardens his heart. He strengthens it. He stiffens it. He firms it up in his position and his position is to disobey this and not let Israel go. And as we continue, what we'll see is he'll bring a plague. And the plague will be so terrible, Pharaoh will say, Moses, pray to God, ask him to take the plague away. And Moses will say, okay, I'll do that. And he'll pray. And then Pharaoh will go back and say, never mind, I'm not letting you guys go. And he'll say, Moses, uh, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then another plague will come. And the same thing will happen. It'll be so bad. Pharaoh will call out for Moses. Moses will come and say, Moses, pray to your God. Tell him to take this plague away. And Moses will say, okay, but are you going to let us go? And he'll say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to let you go. And then again, as soon as the plague's gone, it says Pharaoh will strengthen his heart again to be in rebellion. 
And what these guys are really trying to show is that that word doesn't have to be bad. In fact, the word itself is amoral. It doesn't have a connotation of being evil or rebellious. What it means is to be courageous or to be stiff-hearted in what you already want to do. So in the case of Ezekiel, it was a good thing. When the Lord says to Ezekiel, his prophet, his man, he says, I am going to strengthen your forehead. I'm going to give you a stiff forehead, a strong neck. Why? Because you're going against a very stubborn and strong people who aren't going to listen to you. So you don't need to be afraid. I'm going to make you as strong and obstinate as they are. They're going to come against your message and you're not going to give in because you're going to be just as hard as them. So we see that very quickly as we look at Ezekiel that really the hardness there is not an idea of I'm going to make you rebellious. I'm going to make you evil. That was already Pharaoh's intent. But there is a part of this that is scary, and that's this part. God will take someone, once they have rebelled against him enough times, and he will still, even though they are against him, use them for his glory. So in the case of Pharaoh, Pharaoh is against him. He's satanic in his rebellion against God. And God shows him sign after sign after sign that speaks forth to the power and goodness of God. And yet... Pharaoh stays rebellious. And so God says, now, as, as we get further into the story, it'll eventually say, then the Lord strengthened Pharaoh's heart. So after Pharaoh does it so many times, then the Lord gets involved and actually starts strengthening Pharaoh's heart to keep going the direction he would go. Pharaoh wants to go this way. He wants to wipe out Israel. He wants to destroy them. As he begins to see the power of the living God, at some point he does lose heart. He starts to get fearful. He starts to become cowardice in what he wants to do. And the Lord says, I'll give you the courage you need to go through with what you want to do so that my name can be glorified even in your rebellion. And so really what it's showing is that the sovereign God works in his majesty, not only through the goodness of people, but through the rebellion of people to bring forth his glory and to show his might. And so in the story of Israel, what we see is because the Lord gave him that last minute of courage to go against Israel, we see the final destruction of not only Pharaoh, but his whole army in the Red Sea. And so there's this much more glorious um, defeat of not only Egypt's gods, but one of their gods who was specifically the king, Pharaoh, who was a deity. And that's kind of the final that's the end. That'll be the end of the story. So if you didn't know, that's what happens. You know, sorry. <laughs> um, but so I just, I want to convey that to you that what the Lord wants to do is he wants us to be like Ezekiel. He wants to take the cowardly man like myself, the weak man like myself, and make him powerful like Gideon. Or in Ezekiel's case, he wants to make him courageous enough to stand against whatever comes against them. It is not his desire to get rid of somebody like Pharaoh. The Bible is very clear about that. He doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. It says in Ezekiel, another chapter of Ezekiel, I think it's 33, that he would rather that the wicked repent from their evil, turn and come to him so that he can forgive them. But if you remain in your rebellion, he will even use that for his glory. No. Yes. Can I ask you a question? That might be Earlier, <laughs> earlier you Ask. said the thing about, or you read, 
that God was going to kill Moses? Was that because... And we're going to go into that right now. That's our next thing that we're going to go into. So every time. Every time. This reminds me of that other passage. while you're sleeping and looks at your notes. Okay, so... Here we are. The Lord says, I will harden his heart. We just talked about that so that he will not let the people go. And then you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. Now, we have to remember a couple things about this story of Israel in Egypt. The story began with very good things. Joseph was sent down. He was exiled by his brothers as a slave to Egypt. And when he was there, it said over and over, the Lord was with Joseph. And as he was in Egypt, he kept having dreams, or rather other people kept having dreams, and he was gifted with the ability to interpret those dreams by God. And as the story goes, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land, eventually comes to Joseph with a dream. Joseph interprets it because his interpretation is so good and because the advice he gives along with the interpretation is so wise, he's lifted up to the most powerful man in the entire country. Second only to Pharaoh, but really in the day-to-day stuff, he's really above Pharaoh because he's the one calling all the shots. And then his family is invited to come down and live there. And really they're exalted. They're loved because Joseph has saved not only Egypt, but everyone from starvation. And so The family of Jacob is this family that everyone loves. But as time goes on and they continue to breed, they become a danger to Egypt. They become a threat to Egypt. And as their numbers continue to multiply, what the next, or we don't know what Pharaoh it is, but several Pharaohs later, it says what Joseph did was no longer remembered by that Pharaoh. And now the Hebrews, which will later be called the nation of Israel, are looked at as a danger And so they come up with a policy, and the policy is this. From now on, every single boy that's born needs to be killed. That doesn't work. So then the policy changes, and Pharaoh says, this is the new policy. We're not getting to the baby boys in time to kill them. It's now incumbent upon the parents to take their baby boy and to throw him into the Nile River. And out of this, we obviously see the the whole story of Moses. Even his name means drawn out of water. So he was saved out of the water when this terrible genocide of these baby boys is happening. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as the Lord is speaking to Moses. And he says to him this, Israel, so the whole nation, not just the guy Israel back in Genesis, but the nation of Israel is my firstborn son. Now think of how many thousands of his firstborn sons, God's, God sees Israel as his children, not only his children, but the one with the most special birthright. And as we look even further on, as, as Christianity becomes a thing born out of Israel, we see that Israel really was the first ones to get the oracles of God, the word of God, the promises of God, the revelation of God. And so they really are the firstborn amongst what will become many brothers and sisters as God calls all the nations back to himself. But right now they are his only son, his firstborn son. And the Egyptians led by the Pharaohs have actually taken his sons and drowned them in the Nile. So I want you to keep that in mind as he talks to Moses about what he's supposed to say to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. 
And look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. The Lord is going to have retribution for what Pharaoh did. You've already wiped out one generation of my sons. You've already taken and destroyed the baby boys of my nation, Israel. And now I've told you, let my people go. And as we continue through these chapters, we're going to see that there is a common theme here. That not only is God going to be calling them out of bondage and saying, let them go, but that it's for a very specific purpose. God is calling them out of Egypt, not just to be freed from bondage, but to be with him. He says, I, I told you to let them go to come and worship me. This is the beginning of my relationship with Israel. They're going to be one with me. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. So it's not just to rescue them, but also to then bring them to himself. And he says, not, so not only have you killed off an entire generation of my firstborn sons, but now when I have told you to let them go, you're not going to? Watch yourself. I'm about to kill your firstborn sons. And what we'll see is as, it, as the story unfolds, that's exactly what happens. And Pharaoh doesn't relent. And he says, let the, the Lord warns him every time before he brings a plague. And he said, as we get further on, that's the 10th plague. He says, if you do not let my people go, I am going to send the destroyer and he's going to kill all of your firstborn, but no one in Israel will be touched. And on the trip, verse 24, at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him, Moses, and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. So obviously this is pretty weird. <laughs> God has just spent a several verses, uh, I, the better part of two chapters, arguing with Moses about how he's going to be the one to set Israel free. And every single time Moses says, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? The Lord comes back and says, yeah, but I'm Yahweh. So I'm going to take care of it all. And then he gives him this special mess, uh, this special message. Gosh, this lisp is getting me, man. <laughs> For Pharaoh about his firstborn son. You've taken mine. Now I'm going to take yours if you don't let my people go. And then we get this really weird scene where Moses is, is obeying God. And they're at a campsite. You know, it's going to take them several days to get back to Egypt. And while he's there, the Lord attempts to kill him. This seems really, really counterintuitive. Like it doesn't make sense until you consider Genesis 17, 9 through 15. Now, all the things that are happening, every single thing that is happening in this, this um, interaction between Moses and Yahweh are predicated on one thing. The promise God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that promise was, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land, Canaan, and you're going to be a blessing to all the nations and all the families on earth. So everything he's doing with Moses is predicated on a promise he already made hundreds of years ago, about 400 years to be exact. So why now that he's calling this guy for a special mission and, he, and he's finally accepted the mission, he's heading back, does the Lord attempt to kill him? Now, I would argue that oftentimes God does things only to get a reaction out of us. And I think that's the case here. I don't think 
it was never the Lord's plan, in my opinion, to actually kill Moses, but to get exactly the reaction he got, which was the circumcision of Moses' son. So let's read the covenant that all this is predicated on. All this is, is it balances on the promise that God had made to Abraham. And when God made that promise to Abraham, he said, we're going to come into a covenant together. We're shaking hands, except we're not going to shake hands. We're going to do something a little different. God said to Abraham, as for you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, they are to keep my covenant. And this is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Now he's already told him the things he's going to do for him. And now he's telling Abraham what you're going to do for me to be, to, to shake hands with me. In other words, every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring, whether born in your household or purchased. Now, I want to pause here. It's not the, the major point that I'm making, but I do think it's absolutely fascinating and incredible and really just shows who the Lord is that when slaves essentially would come into Israel, they don't come in and are made secondary citizens. They aren't looked at as lessers. They aren't looked at as non-human or less human. In fact, he says when they come in, they have to be circumcised. And when they're born in your house, they're circumcised. What does that mean? They are full citizens to the promises and covenant between the creator God, the living God, and Israel. They enter into that. They become full bore Israelites. There is no difference. So Israel, as we go further on, Israel is, is the further they go, the bigger they get, the collection of nations that will come in grows and grows. Ruth is a Moabitess. Uh, Uriah is a Hittite. That's the man whose wife was taken by David, Bathsheba. He was murdered. But the point being, you're going to see these nations that technically are supposed to be driven out from the land. And yet many of them, instead of being driven out, come and confess that Yahweh is God and say, I want to join. And they say, great, here's a knife. Go in the back room and circumcise yourself. And the point, the point I'm making though, is the goodness of who God is at his, at his, at his true core, God is a God that is calling all people to himself. And when Israel is made a nation, those who come in, even if they come in as the most lowly are given rights to be called the firstborn sons of almighty God. Now, as we go further, there's a flip side to this, though. He, he tells them this is what you got to do. doesn't matter if it's you or your sons or somebody you purchase or somebody born in your house or somebody you get later. doesn't matter. They all have to be circumcised. And then he says this, my covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. Yes, it will be. Um, if any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Here we are. Moses knows the call of his people. He knows he's an Israelite. He knows he's a Hebrew. He has two sons. It would appear to me, though the text doesn't say specifically, but something happened between Moses and his wife. And one of their sons did get, didn't get circumcised. It doesn't say both, but one of them certainly did not. 
And it is pretty clear that this was some sort of argument or contention or issue between Moses and his wife. The reason being that as soon as the Lord tries to kill Moses, whatever might happen, maybe starts choking violently and she realizes it's God coming down. She takes a flint knife, rips down her son's pants and cuts off the foreskin and then throws it at Moses. Here you go, you bloody bridegroom. So there's something going on there. There's, there's obviously a fight. She had apparently won the fight, it would appear to me, initially. He wins the fight. In the end, it looks like, because the kid gets circumcised. And then it says, the reason we know that that was the issue is because immediately after her doing it, it says, so he left him alone. So here's the man who is going to be God's singular representative to the people. Not just to the people of that time. Moses will be a singular figure throughout the Bible, throughout the history of Israel, throughout the history of redemption of mankind. In fact, Jesus is compared to Moses in Hebrews as being greater than Moses, just as the owner of the house is greater than the one who serves in the house. And so he is a very, very, very important figure, not just a prophet, not just a man called on a mission. He is going to be one of the most central figures in the entire history of God dealing with humanity. And yet he hasn't taken care of the most basic things in his own household. He hasn't obeyed God this was their singular command. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. There was no law. This was the command. On the eighth day after your son is born, circumcise him. And he hadn't obeyed that. And so the Lord is really saying, look, you might be my man. You might be my chosen person. You might be the one I love, the one I called, the one I'm going to be with. And I'm going to do amazing things through you. That doesn't absolve you from the things I've commanded you to do. And just because you've been called to do something great doesn't mean you don't obey God in the small things. And in this instant, God calls him to account and says, Moses, no, you're going to go and represent me to my people, but you haven't even circumcised your own sons. All the people that you go to see, they're going to have done this. You think they're going to listen to you when you can't even obey the singular thing I've given you? And beyond that, I'm going to destroy Pharaoh for killing my firstborn sons. And you're going to allow one of your sons to be cut off from me. You don't care that much about your own son. You're going to allow him to be cut off from his nation and cut off means as though he were dead. That, that person, it's as though that, that person that doesn't get circumcised to the nation of Israel, they're cut off. It's as though they don't live. It's as though they're dead and they are dead to the nation and they are dead to the promises of God. And so Moses is going to allow this to happen to his own son. So it's just, it's just a good reminder for us that the Lord, he calls us to do things, but he also requires things of us. And in our day and age, we have so often turned him into a genie. Whatever I want, whatever I need, that's what you'll give me. No, we meet with God on his terms. He's the living God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We serve him. Paul says we are his slaves. It's our honor to be his servants. And yet so often in our culture, we flipped it. Well, I'll, I'll, do, I'll follow you kind of on my terms. I still, if I want to sleep around, I'm going to do that. But you're going to be cool with that, right? And the Lord isn't. And there is no time in the Bible that you can ever find that he is okay with us just kind of doing whatever we want in direct disobedience and rebellion to him. He is not. And he is not to be trifled with. 
And again, I go back to, I know I say it a lot, but I go, I just, I, cause I love the idea of it, but I go back to that quote from uh, the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. When, when the girl's speaking about Aslan, who's this figure of Jesus in this typology of this novel. And she says, is he safe? And he goes, no, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's the thing with the Lord. He is good. And that means when we go to God, we have to be on his terms. He's good. So if we're not, we need to ask him to show us where we're not good, repent from that, turn from it, change our mindset, change our heart, change our direction, and then ask for forgiveness and walk with him in the right way. And that's what we see here. And now Moses' wife is the one that does it. She's not too thrilled about it. Um, I think later on we'll actually see they actually go back to the house. So Moses continues on to Egypt, and I think Zephora and her children actually go back to the father-in-law. So probably wasn't a real good uh, thing that happened for Moses in his marriage, but regardless. Um, okay, it says, now the Lord had said to Aaron, so we know that Moses had already said earlier on, he said, Lord, look, I would do this, but like, I'm so bad at talking. I've never been good at it. Not today, yesterday, three days ago. I just, I'm bad at it. And so the Lord finally, we talked about how the Lord gave him a concession and said, fine, your brother Aaron's great at talking. I, that guy never shuts up. So he, I'm going to call him and he'll be your, he'll be your voice box. He'll be your mouthpiece. And so the Lord says, to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron, so see, here we go. He's going to be the mouthpiece. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. Now, remember the signs were throw your staff down. It'll turn into a snake. Put your hand in your bosom. It'll come out uh, leprous. Put it back in. It'll be healed. And if they still don't believe, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, and it'll be blood. So he does these signs. And then this is what it says. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them, and they had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshiped. Now, I just, I love this verse because this is the entire mission that the church was sent on in the Great Commission. Go out and spread the good news. Go to all nations, all peoples, preaching the gospel and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And though this isn't that message, this is a gospel that is wrapped into the whole gospel. This is good news. That's what gospel means. It means good news. Can you imagine you have been enslaved for hundreds of years now, generation after generation. You have watched at least one entire generation of your sons be cast into a river because they weren't allowed to live any longer. And now one comes to you and says, you guys, the time is right. And the Lord, he's been watching all along. He knows. And we, talk, we talked about that, I think maybe a month or two ago, but that the Lord, when it says knows, it means that he, he feels. He was intimately involved. Not, not in the, I know, but I'm far away. I know the score of that game. No, I know because I was there living it with you. I was carrying your pain with you. And when they hear this, it says, 
when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshiped. When the spirit of God reveals his goodness to you, that is the natural reaction. That's why you can go. I I don't know about any of you guys, but I had times where I was in Bible college. They used to do a thing where we would go down to um, Oceanside, which is near San Diego, and we would go out on the beach. And this was like a pretty gnarly area, especially at like nine o'clock at night. And we would go out on the beach and we would just go out and share the gospel with people. Just, it was terrifying. Um, But like we saw people on a regular basis give their lives to the Lord. And just, just from hearing the most basic presentation of the gospel, God loves you. He sent his son to live the life you could never live. He fulfilled the, the law. He fulfilled the goodness of God that he calls us to be, but we can never do. Then he took your sins on himself and died on the cross. And then he was buried and rose again from the dead. And he says, if you'll put your trust in those things that he did for you, you will also overcome death and spend eternity as part of his family. And you would literally have people say, are you serious? What? Are you serious? Yeah. Well, how do, how do I do that? What do I have to do? Just believe we can pray with you right now. Okay. I want to do it. It's amazing. It's insane to think about that. The entire trajectory of a person of a family, of a nation can change from one person hearing this. God is good. He made you for a purpose. He worked you together and built you in your mother's womb so that you could be one with him. And now, despite your shortcomings, he has made a way for you to be one with him for eternity by simply turning from your way, turning to his way and trusting him. That is absolutely mind boggling. And then that he would call morons like me. I won't say, and you, because you guys can figure that one out for yourself. You look in the mirror, ask, <laughs> you decide, you decide. Um, but that he would, but that he would allow somebody as foolish as me to go and share that message and see people's lives change. That changed my life. I'd been raised in a Christian home. I was in complete rebellion to it. I was living however I wanted. I was living in Salem with some friends. They didn't know the Lord. I didn't know the Lord. They were dealing drugs. We were partying every single night. I was convicted of the fact that like I'm heading to hell. I know I am because I'm just like these guys and these guys are dirt bags. And that was the first real, uh, one of the first real revelations that hit me one day was I realized I would see my friends just really skeezing on girls lying to them so they could sleep with them. Whatever they had to do, they, they weren't good guys. And I would just be like, gosh, these guys are such dirtbags. And then one day it hit me like, that's you. You're them. You're the same people. And I started being deeply convicted of the fact that I didn't know the Lord at all, despite the fact that I called myself a Christian because I knew about him. I knew about him, but I wasn't with him. In the same way the demons know the Lord and tremble, I knew who he was but I wasn't walking with, I wasn't loyal to him. And I just, I started having that conviction. And I remember night after night, three in the morning, two in the morning, four in the morning, passing out my bed and even just drunk, stoned, asking the Lord, Lord, please, if there's any way that you can bring me back to yourself, do it, please. And 
Ugh, I remember going and I started just going to random churches on Sundays and I'd be completely hungover. <laughs> I probably reeked. I'm sure I smelled really bad. And I would go in and I, I know when I see people like that now coming to church and I'll be like, oh my gosh, why is this person here? You know, there's, you have those kinds of thoughts because when we come to the Lord, we are still so foolish that we become so much, so often like the Pharisees. And we start to think, well, I got it figured out. This guy, I mean, you're coming here drunk. So what? You think the Lord cares about that for one instant? You think he cares at all? He wants to have his spirit pierce through that person's heart, remove the blindness, take the scales off their eyes and say, you are supposed to be mine. Come with me. I am your God. I love you. And I was sitting at a church one Sunday. I'd, I'd probably done it for three or four Sundays in a row. And it was at a charismatic church, a church I probably wouldn't attend right now because um, it was pretty wild. I didn't know what was going on half the time. <laughs> but the guy gave it. He said, hey, if you want to uh, get right with the Lord, if you want to give your life to the Lord, bucks. Come, up, bucks. <laughs> come up here and we'll pray for you. And you can right now repent and give your life to the Lord. And I remember standing there in that aisle and just saying, Lord, like I've had a, you know, just to preface this by saying, I've had a great life, like great. Like when people talk about, like David said, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places in one of the Psalms. And what he is saying is, Lord, you have done so much good for me. So many people go through so much hardship and yet my life has been charmed for lack of a better term. We would say blessed in the Christian community, but it's, it's been so good. And that's how my life was raised in an amazing family. I always knew love. I had so much, so much good in my life. And yet like that prodigal son, I had, I had completely squandered it. And in that moment, I just remember saying, Lord, if you're really there and you're real and you'll take my life and what I've done with it, just from being from such a good family and just taking it and making it this pile of feces and just being such an evil person. If you'll take it and you'll forgive me of my sins, you can have my whole life. If this is real, you can have all of it. And I know in that moment, my life changed and it's never been the same. It doesn't mean I was sinless after that. It doesn't mean I didn't still struggle with things. I remember buying a calendar specifically after that, putting it up in my bedroom, getting a black marker. Every day I didn't get drunk, I'd cross off that day. Every day I didn't smoke weed, I'd cross off that day. Every day I didn't try and fool around with a girl or fool around with a girl outside of marriage, I'd cross off that day. One day turned into two, three, four. Okay, I'm, I've got a weak streak going here. I haven't gotten drunk. Eventually I had to move out of that house because it was impossible to be around those people. <laughs> My point being though, the same message of hope that Moses just gave to Israel in Egypt is the message that we carry around in our hearts. And the Bible says that the message of salvation is not far from anyone. It's even on their tongue because with the tongue, one confesses that Jesus is Lord. But how will they know without a preacher? Unless someone goes to tell them, how will they know? Moses went, you guys. Now, I'm not saying we have to cross the world, but there's people we know every single day in our lives that we don't talk to. And if we are as cowardly as Moses, well, the same God that was with him is with us. And we can argue with him. Now, I don't, I'm not saying to try and be in rebellion, but I'm saying, in saying like, Lord, but I, I'm not good at this. I, I don't talk good. I'm not good at explaining the gospel. I don't know all the ins and outs. That's okay, I'm with you. Well, what if they say, that? that's okay. Well, what if they ask me a question I don't know? That's okay, tell them you don't know. That's the God that is with us. And that's the same 
story and mission that is throughout the entire Bible. I'm not going to get into the, to, to this aspect of it right now uh, because we're already too far along in, in our time. But as I was going to go into chapter five, what I really wanted to talk about is that there was a, there's a guy who's like a theologian or a, a literary critic of the Bible, but he said, uh, the entire Bible, all it is, is Exodus. This story is the entire Bible over and over. This is the paradigm that then the entire Bible, that's all it is. It's people who've been exiled from God, driven out, forced out from God's presence. And now they're being brought out, departing. That's what Exodus means out of the world, back to God. That's it. The entire story of the Bible is exile and Exodus back to God. That's it over and over. We were exiled in our sins. Jesus came. Now he's Exodus us out of the world, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's it over and over and over. It's the most simple message. It's why a five-year-old can believe and truly put faith in the Lord. And a rocket scientist can believe and put his faith in the Lord. The message is this simple. The Lord wants to bring you out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light and goodness. That's it. Full stop. And we are servants of that mission in the same way Moses was. Lord, I love you so much, and yet I know that I don't love you enough. In 1 John 4.19, it says, we love him because he first loved us. And is that not the picture that we see right there of the elders? As they realize in that moment, God loves us. He sees us. He's been with us through this pain. He knows our hurt and our misery. And they fell down and worshiped. And Lord, that's, that's the incredible message of the gospel. When you speak to us and you say, I love you. I gave my son for you, that you might be part of my family. Lord, we all know John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but receive eternal life. But the next verse says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world through him might be saved for the world was condemned already. Lord, you are not looking to condemn us. <laughs> you have every reason to condemn us. We are condemned. We are full of sins. Every single one of us, our most righteous and good moments are but filthy rags, Lord. Even when we try and do good, it's so mixed with false motives that it's hard to even keep track of it, Lord. And yet you love us and yet you've called us and we have seen your love and that's why we love you. Let us see your love more. Let us experience it more. Let us realize it more. Open our eyes and our hearts, expand them so that we might be filled with more of your love and understand and comprehend it more that we might love you more. And in so doing, spread your message of good to this evil world, Lord. Let us be like Moses. If we can't talk, remind us you're with us. If we're not good at things, remind us you're with us. If we don't want to go, remind us. You are who you are. You, you said, I am who I am. Lord, you're our God. Let us be set on fire for you. And let us shine to this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.